Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Congress is out of session, but a government shutdown looms. Ukraine needs a supplemental as public support for more aid weakens. Republicans move closer to impeaching President Biden over his son's purported improprieties, all overshadowed by former President Trump, who remains popular with his base despite three federal indictments. This, as the GOP is increasingly turning against government, the justice system, federal law enforcement, schools, and the military. Ukraine is slowly gaining ground, but desperately needs more weapons and training, including F-16 fighters. This as families of sanctioned Russians continue to live opulently across Europe. A Chinese Coast Guard ship used water cannons to block two Philippine Coast Guard vessels from resupplying Filipino troops on a Spratly Island outpost that Beijing claims. China is steadily increasing the scope, scale, and complexity of its military exercises around Taiwan as the island nation's vice president prepares to travel through the United States to and from Paraguay. Meanwhile, despite months of diplomacy to improve dialogue with Beijing, the White House has implemented new guidelines limiting U.S. investment in China. This as another property bubble bursts uh, in China. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security, and a co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, the must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship, and former Pentagon Comptroller, Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Uh, everybody, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Michael, a special welcome back as uh, you're giving us a congressional update before you go off again uh, on vacation. And unfortunately, you won't be able to join us next week. Uh, and I should just tell the audience that uh, uh, Dr. Cronin will be ranging the Pacific, so will be unable to join us next week uh, as well. Um, Michael, uh, start us off. Congress is out of session, but there's a multiplicity of themes to discuss. Uh, there's uh, the outlook for a government shutdown uh, late next month. And this is all tied to the Ukraine uh, supplemental, which has unfortunately also become a bit of a political issue and has become a political issue. Uh, Jim, I'm going to get your view on this uh, in, in a second, as now a majority of Americans, I think CNN had a poll, it was 55 to 45, oppose more aid to uh, Ukraine uh, that uh, is an unfortunate uh, uh, development. Walk us through both where we are on a shutdown and where we are in the Ukraine supplemental and how they're actually conjoined issues. Well, you're right. Congress has been out of session now uh, for over a week and uh, will be out. Uh, the Senate will be out for four more weeks and the, and the House for five. Uh, but yet a lot is happening. Uh, unfortunately, most of it is not good. Uh, as we talked two weeks ago, in the House was able to pass one of 12 appropriations bills, and the Senate was uh, did not pass any, although they did mark them all up. So we are either going to have a CR or a shutdown in September. Uh, the key wild card here is the House, and the House only has 12 legislative days uh, in September uh, to get all this done. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of uh, angst now within the GOP conference that it's you know right wing flank really wants a shutdown. Uh, Congressman Chip Roy, who we've talked about a lot, uh, who's probably the next chairman of the Freedom Caucus and has had a you know a seat at the table with McCarthy negotiating all these deals, uh, came out saying that he's a violent no on any stopgap that funds the Department of Homeland Security unless they enact the GOT, GOP plan to overhaul the border uh, and immigration laws. Then he doubled down on that threat by putting out a Dear Colleague letter, uh, which now has been usurped and become a letter signed by 12 of the Republicans from the Texas delegation. And uh, this letter is really fascinating because it's basically saying that they are not gonna support a stopgap uh, measure, a CR that, that funds the Department of Homeland Security unless four of their demands are met. Uh, right. One of which is that Secretary Mayorkas must be removed from office, resign or, or fired, <laughs> right? Okay. So uh, okay. that is- Good, good right. luck Good luck with that. Exactly, right? not gonna happen, right? Uh, and you know they also want uh, their border security legislation signed into law. Uh, they want policies that give uh, law enforcement and the military tools necessary uh, against the drug cartels. Uh, and they want Texas reimbursed $10 billion uh, for their efforts uh, at border security. So these things are just not going to happen. And he ends his letter basically saying no border security, no funding. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, uh, Trump looms over all this, too, because uh, there's going to be a push 
uh, to defund the special prosecution, not just in the appropriations bills, but probably uh, in any NECR. And the Freedom Caucus uh, and their and their hard right allies are going to push for steeper cuts because the CR, remember, funds the government at FY23 levels. They want the government funded at FY22 levels. So uh, I don't see uh, a CR that cuts us below 23 levels, obviously being able to pass uh, the Senate, let alone get signed into law uh, by the president. And we have you know, some members out there, you know, like uh, Congressman Frank Lucas, who chairs the science committee, saying, uh, you know, I would ask all the folks who want to use this as an opportunity to blow the place up. If you succeed, what do you accomplish? Uh, and look, he's asked the right question, but that's what these guys want. I mean, they do want to blow the place up. These guys feel they're the middle finger toward Washington. They think they're saving the taxpayers' money when they have a shutdown. And now the issue is even more complicated because, as you mentioned, the Ukraine supplemental is tied to this. Uh, yesterday, the administration announced a $40 billion package, which is much larger than what people expected. We were expecting all week a $25 billion package. So this $40 billion package is, is $24 billion and aid to Ukraine, uh, $13 billion uh, in defense spending for equipment uh, and then uh, military and defense support, $11 billion in economic humanitarian assistance, things like that. And that's, as we talked about previously, is where a lot of the headache is for a lot of Republicans, too, is on the non-military aid. $12 billion for disaster relief. Now, they did put in $4 billion for the border, I think, as a bone to the Republicans to try and get their support, which allocates funds for border management operations and deploys measures meant to counter the fentanyl trafficking. Uh, I, I don't think that's going to be enough, and I'm really surprised at how tone-deaf this supplemental is. One, they did not reach out to anybody in Republican leadership uh, when they were assembling this package, which I think was a big mistake. Two, there's no Taiwan funding in here at all, which people have been talking about a Taiwan, a China supplemental versus a Ukraine supplemental, knowing that they could combine the two together. Right. And uh, the Biden administration is saying that this is a three-month down payment. So they need this passed in September because this is going to fund Ukraine temporarily for October, November, and December because uh, there's currently, I think, about $6.2 billion left in the Pentagon account to send uh, equipment from U.S. stockpiles, another about $2 billion uh, to put weapons and equipment on contract for later de deliveries. And this money is supposed to last just until the early fall. So I don't understand what the administration has been waiting for all this time. I and mean, we've talked about this week after week, that the Republicans, before the budget deal, were asking for the supplemental. Uh, right. They did not send it over. And now you also have, again, Trump looming over this like he does everything, because he's calling on congressional Republicans to withhold their support for Ukraine until the Biden administration cooperates with their investigation uh, into the president and, and his son, uh, Hunter Biden's business dealings. Uh, uh, with the Ukrainians. So uh, I, I don't see how this gets attached to the CR and passes in September. If it's able to pass at all, it would be as part of a minibus or on the bus later in the year and still fraught with other challenges too, because I, I think we expect the Senate to try and add more. They, they've already telegraphed this when they agreed to the budget deal, that they feel that the military is underfunded, domestic accounts right. are underfunded, and plus we're going to need more money for disaster relief and Ukraine and China. So this uh, is a mess and has a long way to go. Uh, it is uh, it is utterly uh, fascinating to see how all of this is uh, is playing out. Jim, I'm going to uh, break regular order. Michael, I want to come back to you in a minute because you did mention uh, the the notion of not just uh, impeaching President Biden uh, over uh, his uh, son's purported improprieties, uh, but also absolving somehow uh, former President Trump uh, of his two impeachments uh, as as well. Jim, um, is this the right package at at the right time? And uh, Patrick, really quick. I want to get your sense on whether or not this was an opportunity lost, as Michael said, on, on Taiwan. Go ahead, Jim. Well, you know, I, it, it sounds like to me the way they're putting together the package is not with something in mind like, is this the right thing at the right time? Because if that were the case, this would be, I mean, of that 40, 13, as Michael said, it's only 13 billion that goes for security assistance uh, to, to Ukraine. We're not talking about off the shelf deliveries of things. This is security assistance funding to buy things with. So, right. you know, they're in the middle of an offensive here. And if they were trying to put something together, right stuff at the right time, it doesn't sound like it to me. And I think it goes back to what Michael said. They are so caught up in the politics on the Hill in terms of funding and, and all that Michael laid out. That's that's how they're looking on this. I think they realize they do have a, a funding requirement for the end of the calendar year here. But um, uh, I, I think it is it is something that is far down the, the priority list in terms of concerns that the administration has as they're putting together uh, the, the politics and the funding for this package. So 
I, I think what's driving it is what Michael is saying and not what's really needed on the battlefield. And I'll throw one more grenade into the room, and that is Hawaii. You know, the disaster that's happening out there in Hawaii is certainly going to grab political attention, if not popular attention, in terms of how can we, uh, you know, assist the, the community out there. And that's right. that's going to be another demand for funding. So, um, so no, I, I, this isn't this isn't the right step at the right time, unfortunately. I mean, one uh, other question, right? I mean, the administration was pretty masterful in sort of, and, and so were the Ukrainians, by the way, in sort of fostering uh, support uh, and uh, sympathy. And, you know, we went from a minority of Americans wanting the United States to be involved to an overwhelming majority, uh, a lot of very strong support. But like anything, focus fades and retreats, recedes to the background. Just like the more Trump gets indicted, the more it gets blurry and Americans don't even know how to, you know, I mean, honestly, if you don't have an expert playbook on this, you don't know, you know, the 78 felony charges and what do they mean? And, you know, what's what's going on? Ultimately, how does the United States and its allies and partners, right? I mean, the Russians want there to be a dilution of attention. Uh, uh, Jim, what are some of the things that have to happen to sort of rekindle interest in this or maintain public support? Well, I, I guess a couple of things. One is in every war, uh, whether it's the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War II, you have these fluctuations in, uh, in, in popular opinion. I mean, that just happens as part of politics, too. Uh, FDR was worried about reelection a number of times uh, because of things happening or not happening on the battlefield. So this kind of thing is not unusual. That's number one. Number two is you, you cannot conduct a war by by poll. We can't. Uh, the administration, I hope, is not going to feel its last to the polls and, and the accelerator will be will depend on what the polls say. We, we can't do that. We've got to. And I so far they've set the course. Uh, we're going to support them, uh, Ukraine, to the end. And so they got to They got to lash themselves to the mast and, and keep going no matter what the polls may say one way or another. Uh, that, that's that's the second thing. The third thing is in terms of U.S. interest, in terms of where, uh, whether it's popular opinion or political opinion on the Hill, it depends on on administration leadership. It's got to be Biden himself and his people out there making the case. And, you know, we have talked about this in the past and, and a lot of other four or two here in Washington. Um, the administration and it's got to be the president needs to actually get out there and talk about this more, why it's important. And, and right. for God's sake, uh, come up with some better talking points than not one inch and all that stuff. He's got to get down and have people understand this, both politically behind the scenes in Washington, as well as public opinion. His people have to do that too. And they just have not provided that overall narrative to the extent that it needs to be done. Uh, I agree with you that it's ebbed uh, a little bit. Dove, be patient with me. I'm going to come to you in just a second. Patrick, uh, your sense on the supplemental and an opportunity lost on supporting Taiwan. Uh, Michael is absolutely right. We did expect there to be some language uh, on that. And again, the important tie the administration made early on that fighting, uh, uh, helping Ukraine against Russia is instrumental in deterring China uh, against Taiwan. And if you're going to make those connections, then you have to make a kind of a constant case on why this is important. Uh, our mutual friend Bridge Colby came up in a conversation just the other day ago with a, a significantly right of center friend who was saying how catastrophically wrong uh, the argument is that it's time for us to cut uh, against uh, cut our support for Ukraine and direct these resources against uh, against China. Kind of walk us through on both of those themes real quick. Well, we did miss an opportunity with this supplemental, but the, the, the challenges are so much larger. I mean, you've got a growing U.S.-China rivalry. You've got potential Taiwan contingencies. You've got tensions in the, in the South China Sea on the Korean Peninsula. And we've just had our Hawaiian gateway uh, disaster in Maui, um, uh, fueled in part by, by climate change as well, a, a larger challenge. All of that suggests our priorities are um, maybe misplaced. And, and, um, and yet at the same time, I agree with Jim that we do need to rekindle the clear domestic consensus on why this war in Europe matters so much to our interests globally. Um, and I think that will be a message that we'll hear from Prime Minister Kishida and President Yoon Suk-yeol when they are at Camp David next Saturday at the first trilateral summit that's been organized just for the three leaders um, as the main purpose. And, I, and, and that'll be an important message for an American domestic audience to hear that our key allies in Asia support um, making sure that Ukraine can defend itself. 
but there's this delicate balancing act. There are finite resources. There are many challenges, um, and um, there's politics. And I, and you know that's that makes it really difficult to always give the right message uh, and to know what your priority is. The administration, though, uh, as I, when I get to the end of Pacific and talk about these Asian challenges that we're facing, um, it needs to be doing even more than what they're doing, and we need more focus on this. And yet, you know, we begin every week talking about Ukraine war. So we've been distracted by Russia's aggression for the last 18 months. Thank you very much, Moscow, for distracting us. And yet, I don't agree with Bridge Colby that we can ignore that. Um, We must support our transatlantic alliance. We must build an international coalition against the use of force and aggression. Um, But we have to figure out how to walk and chew gum at the same time. And this is an ongoing challenge and it costs money and the money and the bills are, are adding up. Uh, uh, Dove, uh, just uh, hold on one moment. Uh, A quick word from our sponsors, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Dove, just want to get your sense on uh, all of that, uh, as well as the congressional dynamics uh, and how they're playing into all this. Well, uh, I think Patrick hit it on the nose. The problem is simply this. If we let Ukraine go, and this is what Mr. Trump wants, so you've got that looming over everything if he gets elected, then you're sending a signal to Mr. Xi that uh, this could be the same response with respect to Taiwan. So you've got to keep supporting Ukraine. Uh, On the other hand, uh, as the former comptroller, I can tell you, resources are limited. It's very hard for people to understand that when you're talking about an $800 billion budget. But the truth of the matter is, once you tot up pay and training and operations and maintenance and even some money for research um, and procurement, you just don't have enough. Uh, Certainly not enough to fight two wars at the same time, which theoretically could happen. Uh, And so we've got a real dilemma here. Now, you add to that uh, a clear uh, right wing congressional opposition to Ukraine, they're basically reverting back to Robert Taft's isolationism of the late 40s and and early 50s. In fact, you got to remember that Taft opposed us going into World War II. So uh, there's always been this element. It's been kind of mute for many, many years because of the Cold War, Uh, but it's emerged again. It's being uh, encouraged by Trump. And so uh, I think what Michael said The politics, and Patrick said it as well, the politics is dominating uh, the actual practicalities of having to deter Russia, China, and oh, by the way, Iran and North Korea. And I'm sure Patrick's going to talk about North Korea, and I'll talk about Iran later. We've got a serious problem here. And unfortunately, particularly on the House side, those folks aren't serious at all. And uh, I'm beginning to wonder whether they're really Republicans, because everybody who came before them is no longer in their eyes considered a Republican. And I would argue the other way around. Um, I would uh, sadly argue that I think that the party has fundamentally changed and those who are clinging to these ideas, uh, however uh, right, uh, are, are facing a very, very uphill battle, right? I mean, British conservatives did a terrific job jettisoning Boris Johnson and doing it very, very elegantly. Uh, and now he's not even in parliament anymore, as opposed to uh, this sort of marshalling effect Uh, And in fact, Michael, I wanted to bring you in uh, uh, back in on this, right? Uh, GOP is increasing its investigation into Hunter Biden, uh, as you said, tying uh, some of the investigative elements on that and trying to pull the uh, president uh, into it. They, in fact, want to expunge the two uh, impeachment votes against former President uh, Trump. And increasingly, Republicans are finding, as we've been discussing on this show and discussed individually and discussed with friends uh, in uh, the party, Moving away, you know, it was the law and order party. It was uh, support for uh, the the Justice Department and the rule of law, supporting institutions, uh, importance of education uh, and and importance of support in the military. And yet on each and every single one of these uh, axes, the party is at war with the Justice Department because it's prosecuting the former president. It is now, you know, from the biggest supporter of the FBI to the FBI is the worst thing that ever happened because it had the temerity to investigate the president, as opposed to it's an independent investigatory arm, just like the Justice Department uh, is supposed to be uh, independent, targeting the military for politicization and wokeness and all of this other uh, stuff. 
how does this all, uh, uh, Michael, uh, play out? And Dove, want to get your sense before we get back to uh, Ukraine, Asia, and then go to the Middle East. Go ahead, Michael. All right, let's start with the Hunter Biden uh, investigation, which you know, I personally think is, is, is ludicrous. But uh, even though Congress is out of session last week, uh, some members and staff of the uh, Oversight Committee in the House uh, conducted an interview with a guy named Devin Archer, who is a, a former business associate of, um, of Hunter Biden's. And in Archer's uh, statements to the committee and to the staff, he made it clear that Hunter Biden Yes, he leveraged his father's brand as vice president just to give the illusion of access to clients, including putting Biden on the telephone uh, during meetings. But he repeatedly testified that the conversations were innocuous, that they touched on topics such as the weather and and fishing. Um, And he did not witness the Bidens discuss uh, business or U.S. policy. And he denied any knowledge of this alleged five million dollar bribe. uh, Supposedly, the Ukrainians uh, claim to have given to to, to Biden. Um, So after that, uh, Congressman Comer, who chairs the Oversight Committee, comes out with this statement saying star witness Devin Archer delivered bombshell testimony in front of the House Oversight Committee. Uh, this is smoking gun evidence we needed to prove that Joe Biden was the head of the Biden uh, you know, a crime family scheme. You know, and, and this is really a stunning claim to make because it's not backed up by, by any evidence. And it turns out that Comer wasn't even there for the interview uh, and for the testimony, not even in person or even remotely. Uh, and now Comer is asserting uh, that it's even not even necessary to find a payment uh, directly to Biden. They're just reaching for some reason to try and move forward with an impeachment inquiry because they're so upset about uh, what's going on with Trump. And Trump is out there it's still looming over this, too, because he is threatening Republicans who don't help him uh, get his vengeance. Any Republican that doesn't act on Democratic fraud, he says, should be immediately primaried and get out uh, and that he would endorse anybody uh, running against them. Uh, but, you know, again, well, it's is- been working, right? I mean, yes, he's- uh, right. Absolutely. Right. And again, it shows this hypocrisy and double standard, because if you look at Trump and his family, I mean, while Trump was president, the Trump organization made over one hundred sixty million dollars in business deals, which was still de facto run uh, by him, brought in millions of dollars, including uh, hotel rentals to foreign governments that were trying to curry favor with Trump. Uh, The Trump's daughter uh, got trademarks uh, granted to her uh, while the president at the time was supporting a ZTE deal. And while he's having dinner with Xi one night, uh, she just happens to get three preliminary trademark approvals. And Don Jr. took his business associates into the White House and regularly had access to stop national security officials. So it's a, it's you know, it seemed to be this faction of the Republican Party is a law and order party as long as it doesn't apply to them. Uh, and I think it's it's really very dangerous. And it does, this does not serve the American people well. And this, this whole tit for tat thing uh, does not, again, does not serve us well and does not serve our basic function of government. But I will say, you know, I agree with you. I am, you know, very dismayed. And a lot of Republicans I talk to feel the same way about this, these attacks against our justice system and the FBI. And they in, really in private. In, in private. private. In, in private. Absolutely. Right. Well, look, even the same with Ukraine. I mean, we make a big stink over the fact that 70 Republicans voted for the amendment to the NDAA opposing Ukraine. Aid. I know a lot of those guys. They support Ukraine. Aid. They're just afraid to take that vote because they're afraid of getting a primary you know, back home. Um, and now the Republicans are also parsing their words very carefully that they support local law enforcement, just not you know federal law enforcement. And you know I think it's it's spiraling out of control because we're, we 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 spend so much time attacking government uh, that we don't step back and think about the good things government does. And our government you know may not be perfect, but there is really no better system. And our government does a lot of good things well. And I I fear as although it's not as bad as what I see on the Republican side, but the Democrats are slipping into this trap too with their attacks on the Supreme Court. I, I just right. don't think that helps us. And I, you know, I remember, you know, when I see this happening. I, I remember back to my days in the White House when, in 1986, there was a Supreme Court decision, Bowers versus Hartwick, which I thought was a terrible decision, right? It it up, uphold, upheld Georgia, Georgia's anti-sodomy law, so two consenting adults could not engage in sodomy in the privacy of their own home. Now that was subsequently overruled 17 years later, but you did not see people eviscerating Sandra Day O'Connor, you know, at the time, or Byron White. Right. So I think that everybody's got to take a, a step back and recognize how lucky we are to live here and the important things that our government does. And while it's not perfect, we can always do better. Well, I, but I believe that they were also regarded as more accomplished jurists than some of the people who are now sitting on the court. And I think that that's part or, or seen as less political or partisan than the justices sitting on the court. But I, I take I take your point uh, uh, on, on that. Um, Dove, uh, really quickly, get your take on this, because I do want to move uh, to Ukraine and uh, Asia uh, as well. Go ahead. 
Well, first of all, the, the idea that you can go after Biden because of his son. Uh, we had Jimmy Carter and Billy Carter. We had uh, Lyndon Johnson and his brother, Sam Houston Johnson. I mean, people aren't responsible necessarily. Roger, for their grown Roger up Clinton and Bill Clinton. Roger, Roger Clinton and Bill Clinton. Um, and the, the Biden made a mistake, OK, uh, by getting on the phone um, and or attending a dinner. It, it looked like a drop in at the White House where the president comes in. The, you know, somebody's meeting with the National Security Advisor. The president comes in to say hi. And that gives credibility to the National Security Advisor. This, this was a, a, a mistake in judgment. It wasn't a crime. It wasn't bribery. It wasn't that. But it was a mistake in judgment. And frankly, it wasn't Biden's first. Uh, I think Michael is right in terms of generally how the Republican Party is simply off the rails. And it, it's pure fear. There's no question about it. Uh, fear of Donald Trump. Nobody else. And when you say primary, what you really mean is that Donald Trump's going to support the other guy. Now, as it happens, he, the people he supported in the last election, in the last congressional election, all lost. Uh, but nevertheless, the fear is there because this is no law. And Trump himself calls it my party. He doesn't often call it the Republican Party anymore. If you if you notice the, his crazy emails, it's my party. And it really is. And so, um, yes, there are a lot of people who quietly say they, they don't like it. But one other factor, and I haven't seen too many polls about this. A lot of Republicans have actually voted with their feet. They have be, they've become independents. And we don't know how many Republicans have become independents, but a, surely a large number have, just as a large number of normal Republicans in Congress decided to retire. So there's something going on there. Remember, even 30% of Republicans who still are all Republicans are not Trump supporters. So the numbers are not exactly as terrible as we think, but if you're sitting in Congress, you're still terrified. Uh, before we move on, because there's an awful lot to discuss uh, with the war, with uh, Europe, and obviously enormous week in uh, Asia uh, as well, and I'm very cognizant, Jim, that you're on a little bit of shorter leash than everybody else is, uh, whether or not, uh, Jim and Patrick, you guys wanted to take a bite at this. Go ahead, Jim. Well, I wanted to say that um, over the past few minutes, I think uh, Dove, Michael, Patrick, have all said uh, really important things about uh, something that I had mentioned earlier on too, which was this politicization of, of, of um, assistance to Ukraine, that we're not looking at what's needed and when, we're looking at, at the more the politics of it. And I just wanted to make sure that your listeners know that I agree with what all three of those gentlemen have said as well. This is a solid front on your program here about the impact of politics on the Hill and how that is warping and shaping so much of what, what needs to be done uh, instead of what can be done, uh, what is allowable in terms of the politics of the situation. So um, the, the concern of Dove, what Michael was saying, what Patrick was saying about the Pacific, I'm a Europe guy and I do Ukraine, but I can tell you, I agree with Patrick 100%, as well as with Michael and with Dove about how serious the problem is that we've got going both in the Pacific and in Europe. Patrick? We have a strong united front. I'll just stick with that. I like all of the comments that have been made. <laughs> we have a strong, we are a united front, the five of us. We stand like Spartans at the gate of madness. Okay, uh, at the gates of madness. Um, uh, Jim, um, Ukraine's offensive is making uh, progress. They're taking the fight uh, to uh, Russia uh, increasingly. Uh, there's always been a sense there's a lot riding on this uh, offensive. Um, you know, we discussed the big aid package and sort of the prospects for support. But what are we seeing on the battlefield and how the progress we're seeing on the, on the battlefield is in Congress to some of the news reports we're seeing that actually some of the most sanctioned people, their families are living in opulent comfort across Europe, whether it's in Hungary, whether it's in the Czech Republic, whether it's in Switzerland or anywhere else. Um, what you know? So talk to us a little bit about the war, but what next has to happen for us to put pressure? Because from a Russian perspective, they're like, I don't know, you know, Navalny just got sentenced to an even tougher prison, um, you know, for a 19 year sentence or, or whatever it was. Well, I guess a couple of things. One is uh, Navalny and his sentence, you know, Putin has his hands tied on a lot of other things in terms of the battlefield, but politically at home, 
he can stomp around and do things like like stiffening that sentence if it makes him feel good. And I'm just my heart goes out to Navalny and his family, uh, what he's having to go through. So so, yeah, Putin can do things like that. But on the battlefield, there's there's a lot less that he's able to do because of what Ukraine has been able to do in terms of adapting to what they have found in this offensive. Um, and, you know, we've heard a little bit about this last time when we met last week, we talked about uh, a lot of the Ukraine um, planners are saying, look, we're going to have to uh, not do this maneuver stuff that we have been talking about with the allies over the past year. We're going to have to really go back to a bit of an attrition war, artillery, uh, artillery duels here, because uh, we got to get that done before we can do the new tactics and use these new weapons the way we want to do. So. So we've been seeing that the, that Ukraine has had to adapt to a battlefield uh, that has been much tougher um, that uh, than 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 I think they thought uh, in terms of the obstacles and this type of thing. Uh, and so there is progress being made. It's pick and shovel work. It is it is uh, it is bloody for Ukraine. But I will say that there are significant Russian casualties as well. Uh, there are reports that come in over OSINT, you know, this open source intelligence talking about some pretty deep problems uh, with the Russian equipment and these troops that are coming in uh, from the call-up. Uh, and, you know, with those sense, you, you got to take it with a grain of salt. But, but I think we are seeing signs on the battlefield that Russia, as much as it is also adapting to what Ukraine is doing, they're not able to bring in the large amounts of modern equipment or well-trained forces to try to push back on Ukraine. They are still hobbled. Uh, by by what they've got in the in the larder, if you will, to bring to the battlefield to push back against the offensive. So there is progress being made. The Russians are being pushed back. It, but it's this battle between public expectations in the West, political expectations on the Hill, on the one hand, and and how battlefields work. Right. The expectations on the in the public and uh, among politicians is based on ignorance, frankly, on how this kind of warfare is conducted and how long it takes. Uh, and that's a problem. Uh, it's a bit late to educate them, but the administration has to keep solid, keep firm, keep moving forward, knowing that this is what's gonna be, be uh, with the conditions of a battlefield is gonna breed this kind of delay. And they're gonna have to keep moving forward on assisting uh, Ukraine with a lot of 155 ammo, uh, attack them. We've talked about all that. We've got the laundry list. But last thing I'll say is I sure wish the administration had given them a lot of mine clearing equipment early on. I don't understand why right. it has taken them this long. I remember uh, a couple of, uh, well, six or eight months ago on the list, I saw the first mine clearing equipment. It was a roller, I think. And that was it. And I said, my God, they're going right. to need about a thousand of those. So I don't know. But the administration I'm hoping can adapt to and the administration can uh Keep going with supplies, not just like the 155, but but also the uh, optical breaching equipment that uh, Ukraine desperately needs. How does the administration need to work with its allies and partners to crack down on the families of people who have been sanctioned? I mean, at the end of the day, this becomes painful to them because it impacts them. We're not well, making I, it painful to them. Know, Ergo, it does not impact them. Well, I think I think you're right. I mean, but the countries you listed, Switzerland. You know, the Swiss have other issues, too, not providing assistance to Ukraine, for instance. Uh, but but Switzerland, yep, they're uh, they're despite you know, despite lavish initial claims that they would. I know. I know. And and Hungary, too. I mean, Lord, uh, we know we know what Orban and his crew had been doing and not doing. So and the checks, you know, so I think there are we're going to see this kind of looking the other way in those countries that are friendly towards uh, Putin. Uh, and uh, and they just are. We, can, we don't have 100 percent participation, if you will, by all the allies and also uh, partners there in Europe. But the ones that count, we do. And we just have to we have to expose these things. And I think well, I'll go like you on your program here, exposing these things to people so that they know that uh, we got to put pressure on allies you know, to stay at 100 percent. And then those that aren't, those that look the other way, we need to call them out, too, and not let them get away with this. But there's not a whole lot you can do, uh, unfortunately, to uh, bring Hungary to heel on this uh, or Switzerland for that matter. matter. But we got to call it out. We got to make it public. Uh, and we got to put pressure on the other countries to not backslide, but to stay firm in terms of dealing with these oligarchs and their pleasures there in Europe. 
Jim, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on. Hope you guys have a terrific weekend. I look forward to having you back on next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Vago. Patrick, uh, we're coming to the uh, Asia-Pacific portion of uh, the discussion, and there's an enormous amount to uh, discuss, and I'm going to bring Dove uh, and uh, Michael in uh, because there are some themes worth discussing. Just a quick reminder to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host uh, with uh, our very own JJ uh, Gertler. Patrick, um, kind of, you know, enormous uh, news flow uh, in uh, the Asia Pacific. Obviously, there was China's uh, intimidation of uh, two uh, Philippine Coast Guard uh, vessels that were trying to re uh, replenish uh, the Philippine outpost on uh, the Spratly Islands, uh, which is uh, contested, but Beijing claims as its own. It's been uh, uh, you know, Filipino territory for a very long period of time. Uh, in fact, there was an international arbitration uh, decision uh, along those lines, which uh, China refuses to abide by. And against the backdrop of becoming ever more aggressive uh, with uh, Taiwan. I know that we keep talking about there's no running clock, you know, we shouldn't be worried. But if you're looking at this, the Chinese are methodically increasing scope, scale, complexity of all of the operations they're doing around Taiwan, crossing the median line, which is no longer a border. There was a great New York Times story about that um, today. Um, at the same time, when China is having structural pressures internally, and there's nothing an autocrat likes better than having an external crisis to distract everybody's attention uh, from what's going on. Put into context what the Chinese are doing with the Philippines, uh, as a microcosm of how they're behaving badly uh, with everybody else, and what this uh, action uh, against the Philippines tells us on what we should expect to see from the Chinese, along with the other uh, efforts around Taiwan, when uh, uh, Lai Ching-te visits uh, America en route uh, to Asuncion to uh, Paraguay, uh, because every single time a Taiwanese official <laughs> or an American official ends up in Taiwan, uh, the Chinese uh, have a hyperbolic overreaction to it. Well, you've just covered a lot of the waterfront, but I think let's pick it up right there with the coming Taiwan crisis. There are already two major air incursions from the PLA this week, and yet the big fireworks, the big exercise and drills are likely to start after uh, Vice President Lai's uh, transit exit out of San Francisco next week. He's going to be arriving in New York this weekend. In fact, I'll be doing uh, talking to the press delegation following him uh, in New York. And um, he'll be then going to Paraguay. And then when he exits out of San Francisco, that's when many people expect to see something like what happened after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, uh, a serious uh, set of military drills to simulate uh, blockade, attack, invasion, all of the above. Um, as a way of driving up fear in Taiwan and in the region, because part of their game here is to uh, both distress and uh, demoralize Taiwan and uh, deter the rest of the region from supporting Taiwan, and ultimately to get, get their way without uh, having to go through the use of force that they keep uh, threatening is on the table. Um, and indeed, this was a point that um, Admiral Studeman, who's retiring uh, as, as the Naval uh, Intelligence Chief this week said at a very good uh, program, I, I recommend watching at the Hudson uh, that Brian Clark chaired, um, uh, talking about China's approach to cognitive warfare is partly to both go after a whole society's viewpoint of what's important, demoralize the Taiwanese, for instance, but also distract the rest of us from, from just focusing uh, uh, you know, on the rest of what China's up to, because it's not all about Taiwan. Um, they're up to so much more than that as they try to expand their influence, even while they're, yes, still very carefully trying to solidify uh, and unify uh, China so that it's never again humiliated, so that it is again the Middle Kingdom, so that it is uh, firmly secure and that the party is firmly secure under Xi Jinping. And that's, that's sort of what's driving uh, so much of this policy. Um, Taro Aso, the former prime minister of Japan, um, very significant figure. I know him well, 82-year-old. He's the grandson of Prime Minister Yoshida, who was the key prime minister in the decade after World War II. Um, and he goes to Taiwan this past week. He gives a, a very uh, strong uh, speech about the will to fight. We must exhibit the will to fight. He's talking about Japan. He's talking about the allies. 
um, because um, we have to avoid the Margaret Thatcher mistake of what happened to how uh, the miscalculation of Argentina because Thatcher failed to give a clear signal that the UK would defend the Falkland Islands if invaded. Um, and um, so very important, even while Taiwan just docked a Coast Guard ship in Japan, um, very interesting signals being sent. At the same time, uh, what I'm saying is that this Vice President Lai's visit, who's also the, the Democratic Progressive Party's candidate and sort of the front runner or one of the two front runners in the uh, three-way race to be president in January, um, is uh, about to arrive here and the fireworks are coming. The South China Sea is uh, where tensions are, are always simmering and China's been pressing very aggressively with dangerous maneuvers, with uh, protection of unlawful claims. Um, and they've just done it again this last week over second Thomas Shoal where the Sierra Madre was grounded by the Philippines uh, years ago and in Philippine exclusive economic zone as codified by the 2016 arbitral panel that you referred to in the United Nations uh, in The Hague. Um, and uh, they, they blocked ships from resupplying the uh, troops on the Sierra Madre, and then they fired water cannon. Um, and the Philippines uh, threw out the video to make sure that people could see this. The Chinese meanwhile have countered with their own video showing that the water cannon wasn't hitting the ship. That's not true, that's just part of the video. Right. Um, and yet, um, so you've got this uh, video war going on, influence war. Um, and I'll be in the Philippines this coming week to talk with officials uh, about uh, where we go from here, because uh, this is very interesting. President Marcos has just frozen the major Manila Bay reclamation projects that his predecessor Duterte had approved. They may go ahead. They're just going to be right. reviewed. But this includes the Chinese communications construction company, which the United States has said very clearly opposite the U.S. embassy there in Manila uh, is a potential threat because they built the 3,000 plus acres of reclamation when China reclaimed and built these artificial islands in the 2013 through 17 period, um, and, and including in Mischief Reef and other places in the Spratlys that are launching points for uh, sort of keeping the Philippines at bay. Um, Biden, by the way, President Biden is gonna visit uh, Vietnam in uh, after uh, probably the end of October, beginning of November, when he's expected to upgrade the U.S.-Vietnam relationship from this so-called comprehensive partnership to a strategic partnership. So when you think about the upgrading of our relations with the Philippines that have been at the front of, say, Secretary Austin's uh, diplomacy, but also what Biden might be doing with Vietnam later this year, uh, clear signals uh, straddling uh, near Taiwan and in the South China Sea, the two major claimant states, Philippines and the Vietnamese that the Chinese keep beating up on, um, are going to be closer uh, strategic partners of the United States. The U.S.-China rivalry overall um, also saw the Alaska Patrol, right, this past week. So 11 ships from Russia and China um, going near the Aleutians, but staying in international waters. And very importantly here, uh, Vago, the U.S. government did not overplay this. They said, you know, they, we did send out four destroyers, we did send out reconnaissance planes, um, but uh, that didn't stop the Chinese uh, tabloids like the Global Times from trying to hammer the United States for a so-called double standard about complaining about ships near near the Aleutians when we complain about um, when they complain about our ships near them, um, but the U.S. government did not complain. We recognize that this is the international waters and that these ships are allowed to pass through there. We're just going to watch right. them closely. Um, big difference. Meanwhile, she is in Bay Daiha, uh, so the seaside resort where every summer the party leaders uh, go for some ten days to two weeks. And they're going to be talking about Taiwan strategy, about economic strategy, about the Ukraine war for sure. Um, last year, one of the things that came out of uh, Beidai, we, we now know, was the decision to uh, impose restrictions on critical metal, metals as a response to the Biden administration's export restrictions on chip and advanced chip making technology. Um, so watch this space. We'll see what they come out of uh, with this this year. And this is all while we're talking about new working groups being set up between the United States and China for dealing with the maritime disputes, but also with Indo-Pacific issues in general and maybe global issues, uh, as we expect still some kind of a Xi-Biden uh, summit. In fact, President Biden is supposed to be going to China uh, later this year as well. And by the way, uh, another signal of that is the fact that uh, Japan's prime minister is likely to meet with Premier uh, Li Chang as kind of a, you know allies working up this set of relations uh, as we, we try to manage the growing rivalry between the United States and China.
We've got about five uh, minutes left, and so I do want to go into a little bit of lightning round because I want to pull Dove uh, into this. Uh, the economic, you know, on the one hand, uh, Patrick, the administration has been working very hard to engage uh, with uh, China and build dialogue. But on the other hand, the president of the United States just clapped restraints on U.S. investment in China, especially on semiconductors uh, and advanced uh, technology. What impact uh, is that going to have? Um, and how does this latest property bubble explosion in China disrupt uh, the, you know what I mean? I mean, the, that will drive the Chinese maybe to an overreaction in a lot of ways. How, how, to, how to look at this? Because people are getting a little bit of policy whiplash here. Indeed. And there are three schools of thought already identified pretty clearly. You know, Mike Gallagher, Chairman Gallagher is already out there saying this isn't enough. Um, there are those supporting the administration saying they got the balance right. This is a good start. Um, it's narrowly defined, but it's the de it's de-risking along the AI and the chips and the quantum exactly where we should be. And then there are those who are saying, like Nick Lardy, economist in China, uh, saying this is insignificant. I mean, there's no capital uh, sort of shortage for China, um, and they don't really need this anyhow. So there are three schools of thought out there. I'll let people you know read more and decide on, on where they stand. Uh, I'm basically somewhere in the middle of those, uh, but I do think that um, it, it's necessary to keep pressing on these issues, but let's not expect that this changes the game. Uh, it's just part of a natural defense for the United States to protect uh, critical technologies and to try to gain some new momentum around our own manufacturing base and our own uh, allied industrial capabilities for things that are really critical for our national security. Um, I, I should also mention separately, just throw in the North Korea issue, because I know you know, another part of this great security dilemma that the United States face is the return of uh, North Korea and Iran, I would argue, uh, and I'm sure Doug will talk about that, uh, as major and growing challenges to U.S. security interests. And we saw this with um, Kim Jong-un literally declaring uh, a full war uh, sort of uh, posture uh, this week. Now, that's theatrics intended to preempt our ultra-freedom shield, this second year in a row, we're having these major exercises here in August. Um, and um, also he's just uh, cashiered his defense minister, bringing back the old defense minister, Yi Yong-il, um, and um, as a sign that once again, he's shuffling the military, doesn't trust them, he's not happy with right. what they're doing. Um, so, uh, and, and Kim Jong-un also visiting six munitions factories after defense minister Shoigu's visit and declaring that defense production is going to increase. So many suspect, and I suspect, that defense production increase is for sending arms to right. Russia. Right. Um, I, I, I think it's. Uh, I, I think that that's something very important to watch because just like the uh, Chinese uh, rescued North Korea's bacon, in the event of a crisis, you can expect the North Koreans are going to pay that back somehow uh, in terms of causing. Uh, just to consume bandwidth. Dove, you've been uh, very patient. I want to get you in to uh, talk about Iran, Israel, but also get your thoughts on, on sort of the bubble uh, bursting. Uh, you uh, paid attention uh, to the Evergrande uh, scandal when it happened, and you said, like, look, this makes everything potentially uh, a little bit more dangerous. Uh, just, you know, get, you, get your sense on all of the China negotiation and, and where we are in terms of the sanctions, and then do want to get your thoughts uh, on uh, Israel. Terrific piece. Uh, you you wrote in uh, the Hill, um, taking uh, Israel, uh, Israel's uh, finance minister to task on what you said were Jim Crow uh, policies, uh, as well as um, you know the the you know we think about the Iran hostage situation as something that happened years ago, uh, but it's still uh, making uh, headlines. Just give us your sense uh, across uh, all three of those pieces. Okay, very quickly, uh, China is in recession right now. Um, that's not what the Chinese leadership expected. Uh, that's not what the world expected. It's not all that long ago that people thought China would overtake our economy in the next uh, 10 years or so. That ain't going to happen. Uh, and I think all the concerns that Patrick laid out are even more uh, acute now because uh, very often, as we've said, dictators try to uh, 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 essentially um, get their populations to focus on an external conflict rather than on their internal troubles. Uh, another major real estate uh, company has uh, gotten into trouble beyond Evergrande. Uh, a huge percentage of the Chinese economy is tied into real estate. That doesn't bode well. Uh, a significant percentage of China's young people are unemployed. They've got a very high unemployment rate. 
all of which points to uh, real trouble for Xi, which is what they'll probably be uh, discussing, uh, as Patrick said, uh, during their uh, two-week vacation. Um, on uh, the Middle East, there are a whole bunch of developments. Uh, you mentioned the hostage crisis. Uh, we have just agreed with the Iranians uh, to uh, get South Korea to release $6 billion worth of uh, Iranian funds that were frozen uh, in exchange for the release of five uh, Iranian Americans, two of which are now in London, three of whom are now uh, under house arrest. Um, and the money is supposedly going to go to special accounts for humanitarian aid, which they will. The problem is that, of course, that may have been money that otherwise would have been spent by the Iranian government because money is fungible and $6 billion will essentially fund Hezbollah or other terrorists for the next five years. Uh, there's also the larger question of whether if you continue to pay ransom like this, aren't you going to encourage more hostages? For instance, uh, the hostage that Ru the uh, Wall Street Journal reported that, that Russia has taken hostage. And oh, by the way, when, when Obama did this, he paid 800 million. Now we're paying 6 billion. By the way, those numbers are exactly the same as what the Washington commanders went for when the, their owner bought them and what he sold them for now, except we're not talking about a football team. We're talking about human lives and uh, right. relations with Iran. And some people are now saying because of this deal, we'll be speaking to the Iranians. We might even have a nuclear deal. All in all, I don't think this is going to help Mr. Biden one bit. There's already been protests, bipartisan protests against this deal. Uh, and, and this is all happening at the same time as we're still talking about Marines uh, being on board uh, commercial ships to deal with the Iranian uh, uh, Revolutionary Guard Navy which has been harassing uh, shipping in the, in the uh, Arabian Gulf or Persian Gulf, depending on which side of the Gulf you're on. Meanwhile, in Israel, uh, something folks have not noticed, their uh, finance minister, who I consider to be a racist, has uh, announced a budget which reduces funds for Arab municipalities who are already suffering from gang warfare and high crime uh, and this, these are municipalities, by the way, inside what's called the Green Line. This is not on the West Bank. He is essentially uh, uh, impoverishing towns within Israel's boundaries that everybody agrees to. Uh, not only that, he's taking 50 million out of a special program that allows Arab students to study in places like Hebrew University, which gives them far better business prospects. And what he's saying is, well, go to Arab universities. Well, that sure as heck sounds to me like the old days uh, in the South when they said, well, go to, his, go to black universities and colleges, but don't touch the University of Mississippi or Alabama. It's totally outrageous. And uh, frankly, it's, I think it, it's going to prejudice the Abraham Accords. And there's discussion now about the Israelis asking for a security guarantee like the one the Saudis are asking for. And it just seems to me that given the behavior of this Israeli government, that is exceedingly unlikely or it should be exceedingly unlikely. Guys, thank you so very much for joining us. All of you really, really appreciate it. I uh, hope you guys have a great weekend and a great week. Look forward to having you back on uh, again next week. Thanks so very much. And thanks to all of you for joining us. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program uh, possible. We'll see you again on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. Thanks very much. Have a great weekend all.